best mistake that I made, thankfully, earlier on in my career was not to involve the right people and that taught me to involve the right people. You get a much better outcome, everybody's bought in. I mean, my leadership style now, I'm always talking to my team, right, we need to get here, what do you guys think we should do? These are my thoughts, what are yours? And then people feel part of it and the purpose. Hello and welcome to the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader you can possibly be. It's my gift to you and it's completely free. In today's episode, I'm talking with Rebecca Creswell, who is the CEO of Priory, the UK's top mental health and social care provider, with roles including Head of Governance at NHS Stockport and Assistant Director at NHS Northwest, Rebecca then joined Priory in 2012. As its Chief Operating Officer, she led 240 sites before becoming Priory's first female CEO in 2021, post-merger with Median. In this episode, you can expect to learn how successful leaders are made up from the right mix of IQ, EQ or emotional intelligence and AQ, adaptability quotient or our adaptability intelligence, if you like, and what the research suggests is the best ratio of those ingredients. You will also get a live example and learn how to manage those transitional moments between meetings and be fully present regardless of what has just happened. You'll learn what to do when you crave certainty and are forced to lead in a deeply volatile and uncertain environment. And you'll also learn what to do when you or a loved one is experiencing periods of significant mental ill health via my own personal and pretty raw experiences of late, plus lots, lots more. But that's enough by way of an introduction, so let's dive right in and please enjoy my conversation with Rebecca Creswell. Rebecca, can you start off by telling us about your first memorable leadership experience, either good or bad, and how that's gone on to influence how you operate as a leader now? Yes, that's a really good question. I've um, always been quite young in the jobs that I've done. And so as a result of that, I've really needed to ensure that I'm credible with people quite quickly, that I have the experience to do the job. And uh, one of my first real leadership roles was for NHS Northwest, it was a strategic health authority. And I had big policy lead areas for the Northwest of England for the NHS, like child safeguarding, sequins, the relationship with the regulator, etc. as well as sort of oversight of Greater Manchester area for serious incidents and quality improvement. So it was quite a big job. One of the first examples of where I really had a platform to influence all the um, chief nurses, actually, for all the hospitals across the Northwest. There were 24 of them at the time, if memory serves me right. And they're obviously very senior individuals in their right. I was quite impressed by the audience. And I had to give a review of the learnings from 
child deaths, homicides, um, which is quite a serious uh, subject topic. And I didn't want it to be just another presentation where people could go away, forget what you said, especially when you have the responsibility to affect the system and a lot of hospitals in one go. So I wanted it to be impactful. So I thought, how can I do this? And I decided to pick two or three cases which had some very relevant themes. And I told the story from the child's point of view. I had their picture up as well. And I said, my name is, I went to A&E one day. Nobody asked me why. Uh, if the person I was with was my mum or dad, they didn't ask why I felt I looked so scared, you know, and things like that. And it was a really impactful presentation. And I think it's because I used my EQ or emotional quotient to really connect with the audience. It did move people because there were some people with uh, tears and it, that wasn't the purpose but nobody will forget. I mean, I could have done a lot of boring bullet points of we should always check who a child's with, be mindful of a hidden male in a family or, you know, things like that, which would have just gone over everybody's head. So I think connecting with people emotionally has been one of the things that I've taken with me throughout my career to be able to make an impression and for people to remember key and valid points of what you said. That's amazing, Rebecca. And I'm really curious, as I always am, about what led you to try a different approach to that presentation. Because I think if we're honest, there are so many bad presentations we see in the workplace that, as you said, there are normally full of loads of bullet points and way too much text. And for many people, it's not until much later in their career, maybe when they've had some training or maybe when they've seen an example of a great presentation that does tell a story and connect, that people think about doing things differently. What was it? And you said you were quite young at the time. Where did that drive to present differently come from? So I was about 30 years old, I would say. So it was about 18 years ago. So everybody in the room was obviously more enhanced in years and senior. And I thought it was my one chance to capture them. They've heard so many presentations that went through bullet line by line, um, quite dry. And I probably have a high EQ anyway. So the stories of those children really mattered. And I didn't want them to be a faceless sort of subject area. I just thought, how can I do this? And that first person type telling of the story, I thought would have the best impact because no longer my words, it's sort of their voice coming through. Yeah. Is it a Maya Angelou quote, I think, and I'm going to completely butcher it now because I can't fully remember it, but it's along the lines of people will forget what you tell them there's a middle part to it, but it's, and they'll never forget how you made them feel, right? So that's what you were, were tapping into, really. So I, I suppose that's when I realised the power of different forms. It, I mean, if I just used my IQ at that point, intellectual quotient of these are the facts, I never would have stirred people to move the whole system, which it did. I mean, we went on to create uh, communication pathways between ambulance services, hospitals and community services, which are all managed in very different ways. But often an ambulance service was, I would notice from these stories, was arriving at a house without any preparation or pre-announced visit. And they had vital information of what they saw at those visits. And that never got to different key people. And I believe it's still in place now, all this time later, is uh, 
you know, methods for them to be able to get useful information back to the right people who are closer to those families, for example. Yeah, there's a few things within that that I'd like to, to maybe come back to shortly, but also want to touch on something that you've mentioned a few times and came up when we was preparing for today's podcast episode. So you've mentioned EQ, you've mentioned IQ there. And as I say, from our prior conversation, I know that for you, you think about there being three key ingredients for leadership. Can you tell us what they are and how you now use them and build them into your approach to, to leadership on a day-to-day basis? I think especially working, starting my career in healthcare services, where you know there's obviously a lot of very intelligent people working in health and social care. And it got me thinking about, I don't consider myself to be the most intelligent person in the world. I mean, I have a good IQ. And it was really refreshing for me when this model sort of said, actually, your IQ is only 10% of being a really effective leader. Your EQ, and, and different research papers will tell you different proportions. But if we take EQ, should roughly be 50 to 60%. Because a lot of the time, when especially when you're leading large organizations, you're harnessing the talents, the abilities, the skills, the commitment, the loyalty of hundreds of people, in the case of Priory, thousands of people. You know, we've got over 12,000 colleagues who work for Priory. How can you reach all those people with just IQ or intelligence or facts? So EQ became, and then as I started looking into it further, I noticed the third ingredient of adaptability quotient. How can you have some people that are very connected, intelligent, but they can't manage change. And health and social care systems are complex adaptive systems, which mean that you can never stand still because you have to always not only respond to internal changes within your organization, but all the external ones that are on you. So as a, you need that adaptability quotient, which is resilience, perseverance, <laughs> being able to manage stress, I guess, and not only your own, but in other people because change is hard for people. Since we last spoke, I noticed they've added a fourth ingredient that I haven't had much time to research yet, which is the um, social quotient. Interesting. Which I'm having difficulty sort of looking at is how different is that from EQ, but that's about being politically aware, being aware of different cultures and things like that. So it probably does have a place as well, and I probably as a leader am going to be looking more into that. Yeah. Where, where does that model come from? I've not particularly come across this before, especially with the, the suggestions around the, the percentages. What's the, sort of the origins of the, of the model? <laughs> I'll have to look that up for you, Ben. I just read a lot of papers around it. I don't know who originally thought of it. Whoever did is brilliant. But other people have obviously built on it. And that is the incredible thing about thought leadership, isn't it? That You know, you can have a great idea or any kind of innovation, I guess, and somebody else will finesse it and finish it. And and that's the importance, I suppose, of that social quotient as well as the EQ. And it's really interesting for me, as you say, the percentages, depending on what paper you read, might might change. But it really resonates with me. And, And the reason is, for many years, and this was probably informed by my first career in the military, but certainly for the past 10 years whilst running my, my own business, I've spoken about sort of my definition, my fundamental belief around what a leader exists to do. I used to describe it as being to deliver the results we're accountable for 
whilst looking after supporting and developing the people we've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. Actually, over the past two to three years, the overall belief holds true, but I've completely flipped it in that now when I describe it, I talk about, I believe a leader exists to support, develop and look after the people we've got the privilege and responsibility to lead so that they can deliver the results we're accountable for. Because the more senior we become, success starts to become less about what we can personally deliver, but more about delivering through other people. So that seems to ring true with this percentage split that you mentioned, where 10% success is down to your IQ, whereas 50 or 60 is about the EQ and understanding and connecting with people and engaging them in the vision of what it is we're trying to achieve. So that, that really resonates. Rebecca, there's something I want to play back and ask that might make you blush in front of the 10,000 or so people that, that are listening, but it's a little behind the scenes insight for listeners around the start of this podcast, but I think it's really significant in terms of leadership and it's something I talk to quite a lot with, with my clients. So I forget the exact words that you said, but we was due to start recording this at 11.30, I think, and you you popped up and said, oh, I've just come off of something really busy or some sort of word like that. Uh, I want to just take five minutes to sort of prepare and, and clear my head or words to that to that effect. And I think that is really significant because I, in, in a really positive way, by the way, because I talk a lot to people about as leaders managing transitions and how can we show up and be the best version of ourselves, but more importantly, be the person that we're about to speak to needs us to be. And so often we can go straight from a really difficult meeting and rush into another really important meeting that might be someone's one-to-one or a podcast recording. And half of our brain is still on the thing we just done. Researchers call it attention residue. I love the fact that you did what you did and I encourage leaders to do it a lot. I would much rather have 45 minutes with someone who is fully present and in a good mindset than 60 minutes where half of their focus is on the thing that they, they were just doing. So I guess two questions that come from that, like why did you do that? And in the 10 minutes that you took away what, what what did you do one i wanted you to know that you're important and i wanted you to know the facts <laughs> i had two choices at that moment when i just come back off something is am i late and then make a, a reason to ben do i log on now and just explain to ben the situation and then he knows ah right that's why one, I don't like being late. It's something I've worked on. I used to be late a lot, actually. And I remember somebody once saying to me, not about me, about somebody else, actually, who was late, but it really made me think, is it's a really arrogant thing, they said, for somebody to be late. Because what it's saying is, I don't mind keeping you all waiting while my important self comes to the the meeting. So for me, that really struck a chord with me. So I don't like being late, I like to be timely. And I wanted you to know that uh, I realised that our point was important, but I just couldn't be on time at that moment. I wanted to create myself a little bit of a windbreak, if you like, to be able to come to you fully present. Mindfulness is very important to me. It is hard for us as humans to be mindful, actually. We're only mindful about 5 to 10% of the day. 
which is why we wonder when somebody's supposed to do extreme concentration stuff, why they find it difficult. Um, so you have to practice that. And one of the things I say to my teams, I never allow any emails during my meetings. And if I think people are, I'll actually call it out to say, or I'll start the meeting. Everybody knows the sort of rules of engagement now is I say, I don't want you doing emails while you're in the meeting because it's not good for you. And you're not fully mindful then. You're trying to do two things at once. So we actually have very productive meetings because people are fully focused on the discussion. They contribute more, all that kind of stuff. So I totally agree with you that you need to be present, mindful, engaged. And it probably goes back to the social quotient and also the emotional quotient. Do you allow laptops or devices in meetings? People do use them a lot for instead of printing stuff out. So from an environmental point of view, that's not a problem. But I don't know whether I've got a very keen sense of hearing. My boys say I don't actually, but um, (laughs) that clacky noise gives it away (laughs) if somebody's typing. And I can even tell now on Teams if somebody's not present because we're so used to that virtual. So I'll ask people if I notice people getting through, do we need a break right now? Everybody's in the rhythm of it. So there are laptops. I don't have a laptop myself in front of me because I think it creates a barrier when I'm in a meeting. But I mean, I don't say no to laptops. Nobody would take a phone call or anything that everybody would always say, I've just got to step out, which is perfectly fine. We're all managing really quite important services that people need to. So, yeah, I think it's about a respect thing. Yeah, there's there's the respect, there's the mindfulness being present, the human connection element. And then there's also a real sort of cognitive performance element to it. And I've looked at so many studies around this this lately, and, and there's numerous where they say merely having your mobile phone in your peripheral vision on your desk when you're doing a piece of deep focus work reduces your IQ. A phone being on a table when people are talking to each other will leave people feeling less connected and like they like the person they're talking to less, even if that phone doesn't ring. It's just such a distraction. And the one I heard yesterday that I think brings it home and helps us all be a little bit kinder to ourselves. This this woman said, imagine you're out for dinner with your other half and they arrive with an enormous wheelbarrow. And in that wheelbarrow is printed off every email they've received for the last 10 years, every photo they've ever taken, videos they've ever watched, and all sorts of other things. Said, how hard would it be to not rummage through that wheelbarrow and look at all the stuff? And he said, but we have that wheelbarrow in our pocket. It's it's our smartphone. So it's it's no wonder that it can be so hard to to be fully present these days, right? Yeah, I totally agree. And now if it becomes your habit, I notice the team, and that's ultimately as a leader what you want. You want them to role model your, just like a fountain, it kind of just goes down and, and people, I think, have better meetings because of it. I want to bounce back to AQ or adaptability quotient for a second, because again, I think that's really interesting. And again, from our prior conversation, I think we share a, it's not really a personality trait. It's probably a psychological human need, I think, around liking certainty. I think you said you quite like certainty. The modern world, especially the past four years, right? It's anything but certain. So what are some of the tools, techniques, approaches 
you use that maybe you can share that listeners to this show could could take away to help them be more adaptable and thrive in an uncertain world, even if they're the type of person who really likes certainty? Well, I tell myself it is certain that it will be uncertain. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's one of the things. I also like to know a little bit about the profile of team members or people that I work with or in that understanding that some people actually are not like me. They actually thrive in being uncertain and that evolving thinking. So I think it's understand and that those types of people are not being difficult <laughs> in making a decision or something. They're just a different kind of thinker. And I think that helps. So if you look at Myers-Briggs types, for example, that J judgment, I'm very strong on that, which is brilliant in some ways. So I can make decisions, I can finish and complete tasks and, and move things on. But we also need people who have that emerging thinking that can catch you sometimes when you go, but have you considered this element? So I think it, it's important for people who like certainty to plan that there's going to be uncertainty, to understand that not everybody's like us, and also to understand that it can be helpful when somebody else emerges with a new thought on something that we should sort of value that. And I guess the last thing would be is there are things that you can put good certainty in your life, can't you, that you build, whether that's in your personal life or in your uh, work life. And I suppose I sort of compensate the uncertainty of other things with trying to put things in place that I know will absolutely happen or being in control of my diary or putting in some principles around my work life and home life balance and things like that, that creates certainty for me. And then it means that the in-between bit that's less certain, I have the tolerance to use that AQ and adapt with it. I love that. It's a really similar approach that I use, Rebecca. I think for me, it partly comes from, from the military and it's the same as you, it is putting a lot of structure in into my diary. And I know that that structure will sometimes change, but I know that it won't all change. And there's a lovely quote I like from a guy called Jocko Willink, who's an ex-Navy SEAL. And I think his book is actually this title, which discipline equals freedom. So by being disciplined where he can and locking things down where he can, that actually gives him the scope, capacity to freedom to to flex where he needs to. So it's not as rigid as people think. It it allows you to cope with the the uncertainty, which which works for me. I don't know what you're like, but I love a good standard operating procedure. So everybody's very clear on different things and Gantt charts, especially when you're going through big changes, because that also adds. It sort of breaks that big transformation down into certain steps. Yeah. And it makes it quite visual. Rebecca, one question I hadn't necessarily meant to ask you, but it's something that's very relevant to, to me. And it's linked, I guess, more to what you do rather than rather than how, how you do it. Like, what are your thoughts on sort of the state of mental health and where we are as a society in terms of talking about it and really, really focusing on it? I think what sits behind the question for me is quite quite emotional for me but um personal experience of just over a year ago losing my very best friend to suicide having a friend of a friend 
who went the same way. Another friend who recently attempted it. I just get this sense that, yes, we are talking about it a lot more and mental health challenges seem a little less taboo than perhaps they once were. But what I do see people struggling with and and holding back is sort of talking about or the willingness to maybe use medication or drugs as part of the of, of the solution again that and I, had, I didn't plan on talking about this at all but because of lots of things that I've experienced I was struggling despite eating well exercising prioritizing sleep trying to be be mindful but I was still just feeling very very flat and I went to see my GP and he said I've got what he called reactive depression and despite almost dragging my best friend to a, a doctor's in Spain where he lived and saying, mate, take the tablets. When the doctor spoke to me about taking tablets, I was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm not taking tablets. I'm not taking meds. And, and I am now. I'm feeling, feeling much better. And it's just given me the space to allow everything else that I've been doing and counselling to, to kick in. And it's just something I've become really passionate about, especially with men's mental health, because I've got so much firsthand experience. So, yeah, what's your view on sort of the current state of society in terms of that? Well, I think it is easier to talk about stuff now. We have a long way to go, though. Mm. And especially we have a, a society where, you know, we have social media. Everybody likes to put the the sort of image of perfect. Yeah family life or perfect work or perfect meal or perfect whatever it is we have and and I don't know how that's evolved and probably it's not the right place to talk about that now but and I think people have such high expectations for themselves that when they feel that something goes wrong it really knocks them um so there's a few things I'd like to sort of say firstly that I'm really sorry that that's happened it's something I'm very passionate about as well. We have a men's network in particular at Prior. We have about nine networks. And that is for men to talk. Mm. I promote it hugely. And I don't run it. Other men run it. Men who are passionate about helping men talk about their feelings. And I think that's important. Because there's a lot of focus on women a lot of the time. Yeah. For many different issues. And quite rightly so. But yeah. Uh, men are so important to families, to society. I'm hugely passionate about making sure men, are, men have their mental health uh, looked after and are able to talk about it. Yeah. I think the other thing, besides the high expectations we have for ourselves in society now and, and sort of benchmarking ourselves with others, one of the things that I always think about is inner locus of control is do I feel I'm doing good enough for me? Have I done what I need to do today? Rather than saying, have I done as much as they've done or have I done, you know, shifting that sort of, that goes back to your mindfulness as well. The other thing, and I've talked about this with my friends uh, previously about children, how we're bringing them up now. We almost tend to sort of think if somebody, we need to protect our children from every bad experience and quite rightly so. We can't protect them from everything, but it's important to talk to them about it. So, And what that does when we they, they do feel those things is they build their resilience, and that's the social quotient and the adaptability quotient we were talking about. The other thing is that it's okay to be sad when something sad happens, and oftentimes we forget that. I remember going through something yeah. personally and being at a, a, a meeting at a school about one of my 
sons and there were three professionals there um, from the school and I shed a tear about the um, situation and the immediate response was you should go and see your GP tomorrow and I said no I'm sad because this is a sad situation and that's okay so I think it's about giving ourselves permission to have feelings the third thing before I talk about medication is hope is a huge thing and it's kind of linked to medication as you might be aware a lot of mental health medications take a, a week or two to work and if you talk you mentioned that sort of depression those tablets can take two to four weeks what is really really important from your support network to your health professionals or social care professionals is that we make sure we build somebody's hope it's something that's not talked about. It's, it's about when somebody is feeling, and it can be as life-saving as the medicines, that when somebody's going through the dark moment, that you say, this won't last forever. Remember all those different things in your life. You know, and, and sowing seeds of hope when somebody's feeling quite despairing. And that's important even when somebody comes into a, a ward as an inpatient. Hope whilst they're getting the medication and that's working. Medication has a role to play. And if we look at that scientifically, there's sort of studies that demonstrate different uh, chemical reactions in your brain and things that are needed at that time. And if you're looking at something like antidepressants, what they simply allow you to do is be able to, when your coping sort of threshold has reduced, it just raises it a little bit for you while you start to feel better. And I think it's important to come off those sensibly, though, because you can have a rebound effect, but so slowly. And I, I've, I've, I took antidepressants after my dad died, for example, because I found that situation really difficult. And then I came off them again. I think I was on them for about nine months or something. But it helped me through a really difficult time in my, I was uh, 23 at the time. So well, quite young. Nobody is beyond needing something like that at any point. And I think you mentioned, oh, I can't take tablets. Yeah. It's almost as if that's a weakness. Yeah, absolutely. But if we had a raging infection and we needed an antibiotic, we'd go, give me the antibiotic, because it's a scientific response to what's going on in our body. So I think there are probably stigmas around medication that we need to, to work on, but... I think those would be my things. Building resilience in people, it's okay to feel things when something sad is happening and uh, building hope and getting help when you need it. Thank you for sharing your your example and mentioning your dad and, and your experience. And I think those points you raised are, are really practical and helpful for, for many people, it's particularly around hope. As witnessing my, my best friend's journey he was just spiraling and could not see any way through his challenges and, and could not find that glimmer of hope. And it, yeah, that's, that's incredibly powerful. I mean, I've mentioned all those solutions, but I'm sad and I say this with a, with a heavy heart. And I guess I say it in response to what you've said to me is, even though we might do all those things, sometimes, sadly, some people do still take their own life. And that's despite everybody's best efforts, their friends, their family, their their health professionals or, you know, uh, I think mental health is a disease like other ones. And yes, uh, like we want to save everybody from a heart attack and, uh, and sometimes it's, it's very complex, isn't it? And um, 
just like a heart attack can be extremely complex and we can't save someone. I'm sorry, but that can be the sad reality. Yeah, it can, can't it? And it's again, it's the really useful comparison between mental and physical health, isn't it? That if we catch cancer early enough, we can prevent death from cancer. Or if we catch it too late, some, sometimes we can't. And I think that's where we ended up with my friend. We kind of all spotted it and, and caught it too late. Uh, and he had, because a man with a certain view, kind of mental health was a sign of weakness, taking tablets was a sign of weakness. So he was on and off of his medication, which probably probably didn't help. And it was just all all too late. And it's, it's desperately, desperately sad. Um, but I think if we have more conversations like this, we can prevent more people from going down the same same pathway, I think. You know, and I say that mainly because a lot of people blame themselves after something like that's happened. Like, what could I have done differently? And I say that as a as a, a sad thing to say, but a comfort as, as well to say that, you know, it's com- more complex than X or Y didn't happen. Yeah, and that was the thing that has given me great comfort with 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 my friend that I absolutely believe hand on heart that there was nothing any one of us more could have done to to prevent that that situation like I have no regrets and don't beat myself up I just yeah it, what happened happened there's nothing we we could have done so there's no point continually going over it and and tormenting ourselves like what if Rebecca, one final question on a completely different topic. More and more, I'm liking to start and end each episode of the podcast in the same way with the same question. And that question is, what would you say is the best mistake that you have ever made? I think for me, it might be around ensuring that other people are involved. So I can't remember the particular scenario but it was when I was dealing with a change project that I had to do because I didn't I wasn't experienced I plowed on through like this is the mission to get to the end goal and I didn't involve all the key people that I should have done which then means that you don't have a sustainable outcome it's fraught with difficulties and I think the best mistake that I made thankfully earlier on in my career was not to involve the right people and that taught me to involve the right people you get a much better outcome everybody's bought in they're engaged that you can't just deliver something and say this is what we're doing I mean my leadership style now I'm always talking to my team right we need to get here what do you guys think we should do these are my thoughts what are yours and then people feel part of it and the purpose. Um, so yeah, I think that was a valuable mistake to make that has enabled me to ensure I can do things correctly going forward. It's so often the case, isn't it, that we learn the the most, the strongest, the most powerful lessons from our mistakes rather than than our, our successes. And I guess that's partly the purpose of this podcast. There's a fabulous Chinese proverb that goes along the lines of, the wise person learns from their mistakes, whereas the wiser person learns from the mistakes of, of others. So hopefully by us all sharing some of our mistakes over the years, we can help others not, not repeat the same ones in the in the future. I wish our children thought that, actually, teenagers. They could do Because <laughs> they never believe you when you say, I've made that mistake when I was younger, so please don't do it yourself. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> 
just headed in that direction now. I'm the dad to a, a tween age girl, so that's, uh, that resonates quite quite strongly with me. <laughs> Rebecca, thank you so much for for your time today. It's it's been really interesting, refreshing how we've actually spent some time talking about how you do what you do in terms of of leadership, but the bit of the conversation around what you do and around mental health has been been really interesting and and important and what I've valued the most from our conversation today is the fact that guests often feed back to me how good I am at putting guests at ease but actually you've done that for, for me today in that I hadn't planned on talking about my personal journey and experiences so so, so thank you I think that was a really rich conversation and just a really hope it will, if it helps one person out there who might be struggling themselves or has a friend who's struggling, mm-hmm. then our conversation has absolutely been worth every second we've put into it. So thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining Rebecca and me for this episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. Before you go, do go ahead and check out the Leaders Kit Bag episodes of my podcast. It's the new weekly micro edition of the show. Each episode is just five or six minutes long and focuses on one very practical leadership tip, tactic or topic. And because it's new and I'm so excited about it, we've gone ahead and released the first four episodes at once. So you can back to back binge listen to them all right now. And once you have listened, please do go ahead and share them with your friends and colleagues so that we can improve the leadership capability in our companies, charities and institutions. Because after all, I truly believe the world needs great leaders now more than ever. Until next time, look after yourself, look after those you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. And as always, lead on. Mm -hmm.